The aim of the Folklore Podcast is to bring quality folklore discussion and world-class guests to its audience completely free of charge. As such, we do not carry adverts and do not accept sponsorship. You tell us you prefer it this way. In return, we rely on your support to continue making episodes of the podcast. Without it, we cannot keep going. If you enjoy the Folklore Podcast, please consider clicking the donate button at thefolklorepodcast.com or signing up for a small monthly contribution in return for exclusive content and rewards at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot help in this way, please share our episodes on social media and leave positive reviews for the podcast in your app of choice. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Every so often, a comment comes along out of the blue that makes you stop for a moment and consider what you're doing. I've been putting together the Folklore Podcast for a while now. We're here in Season 4, and still, hopefully, you're enjoying the content. As I've said before, it can be quite isolated on this side of the microphone, and the social media feeds are the main way in which I learn how the podcast is being received. Recently, there was a message posted on the Folklore Podcast group on Facebook to the effect that the podcast had been name-checked on Coast to Coast AM in the States and that good things had been heard about it. Now, I'm in the UK, but of course I know that Coast to Coast is a pretty big deal in the States and the late Art Bell did so much to make it so. It is therefore completely humbling to hear that the show has been mentioned in dispatches in this way. I appreciate that there is a massive audience for podcasting, niche interest content and the like in America, and I am very distant from it over here. So this was a great inroad to take. Do please continue to share the podcast whichever country you're in. Recommend it to people if you feel able to and invite people to get in touch with me if they host other shows that you think would be good for me to talk to. And do comment and let me know when the show is mentioned in some way in your area. I would love to know what's happening elsewhere. On then with this episode, which is the second of two interviews looking at aspects of witchcraft. Last time we heard from Tabitha Stanmore, who interestingly was a student of my guest on the podcast today. Professor Marion Gibson. Marion is Professor of Renaissance and Magical Literatures at the University of Exeter. Her research investigates the relationships between writings about magic and the supernatural, and those about identity, national, local, sexual, religious and so on, in modernity, that is, from around 1500 to the present day. She is the author of Rediscovering Renaissance Witchcraft, 
a book examining the ways in which 16th and 17th century writings on witchcraft have continued to inspire modern literature, especially popular novels, poems and films in Britain and America, and also the author of Witchcraft The Basics, a student guide to the field. Marion has authored and co-authored many other titles on witchcraft, and a full list of these is on the guests page on the podcast website. I met Marion in her office at the University of Exeter, and, as with the last episode, my wife Tracy joined us to feed in elements of her research to the conversation. So we're sitting today in an office on the campus at the University of Exeter with undoubtedly at some point the gentle sounds of students walking past outside and squealing and and all the other strange noises that students make here. Um, And we are talking to you, Marion Gibson. Uh, And Tracy is also with you because we're talking today about uh, the themes of the representation of the witch in popular and contemporary culture and, and, um, and also historically. So this fits in with Tracy's play and her research as well. So I thought it would be good, as we did with uh, Tabitha previously, to do an in-conversation sort of style interview. But if we can, we'll start with Marion, you just telling us a little bit about what it is that you do within your work at the university and what your areas of interest are with your research and how you came to be interested in this. Okay, so yeah, thanks for inviting me to do this. It's a huge pleasure. Um, I'm Professor of Renaissance and Magical Literatures, which is a fabulous title that I was allowed to invent for myself. Um, And that means that I work on anything to do with witches, the supernatural, um, including things like modern paganism and ancient paganism as well, anything which can be seen to have a kind of magical aspect to it. And I do that across the fields of history and literature. So the way I think about my work is that it's all about texts, basically. It's about stories of witches, whether that's in the courts in the early modern period or whether it's more recently in film and TV and stuff like that. I do a range of other things at the university as well, but wearing my research hat, that's what I'm in interested in and I got interested in that actually at this place on this very corridor that we're sitting on um, today because I came here as a student in a very very long time ago 1988 um, and here I found myself taking a module called Renaissance Magic I'd actually wanted to do some other modules and, and this one was on the list and I thought oh well I'll put that on the list and you know students listening to this will know you don't always get your first choice um, and I got Renaissance Magic and it all took off from there so I, I owe a lot to this place and its focus on magical history, if you like. There are lots of us here who work on magical histories. Um, and it's just all gone on from that point, really. So now you're on the other side of the desk and the students are facing you rather than you being one of the students facing the lecturer. What do you cover in your module? I always say I cover everything from medieval demonology to Harry Potter and of course it's the latter part of that sentence that really gets them interested. Um, A lot of people do the module because they love Harry Potter and of course this generation of students is one that that has grown up with Harry Potter, that the students I taught a few years ago were exactly the same age as the leading characters in that and that was really special it feels like it's their text but what I want them to do is obviously read back beyond that so look back to medieval demonology we look at the Malus Maleficarum first of all Um, then we look at some renaissance plays about witches so we look at Macbeth and Dr Faustus and in the past we've looked at things like the Witch of Edmonton as well which I know you've used in your own work Um, then we move on to the present 
so we start looking at texts like John Updike's The Witches of Eastwick. We look at some films, things like The Wicker Man. Um, I've had Witchfinder General on the module in the past. It's sort of flexed over time to look at different aspects of witches. And it ends up in um, thinking about witchcraft in novels for children. So we look at Roald Dahl's The Witches as well as Harry Potter and contemporary film. So it's a module with a very long reach. And I like that, I think that's really important. I always like to see things in their historical context and watch as things develop over time. So particularly the idea of the witch, the stereotype of the witch. How does it begin in literature? Where does it go after that? Where is it now? And these sorts of um, questions which you're covering in your latest book that you've just put out, tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been writing about in that. So the book's called Rediscovering Renaissance Witchcraft and it kind of does what it says on the tin really but it also does what the module does as well so the two really are related to each other. What I do with the students is what I write about and the two feed into each other. I often say to the students that they've taught me more about witches than I've taught them over the years. I've been doing this for about 20 years now um, and I was really interested to start with only an early modern witches. You know that was what excited me. I wanted to know about the trials, I wanted to know what happened in them, what the stories were what I thought had really happened which was obviously different to what the people living at the time thought had happened and then the students started coming in and saying yeah but have you seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer have you seen this have you seen this contemporary culture thing and eventually I realised there was this long-term connection between them so the book documents a lot of that it draws on the things I've taught over the years and it draws on the things I want to teach over the years the module is just about to go through another iteration to include some of this material and it goes all the way through from really Macbeth I don't really look at the medieval period here but I do start with Renaissance witchcraft and then I go all the way through to the present really thinking about the ways that the witch has been rediscovered in literature and particularly the way that those later texts write back to the earlier ones and one of the conclusions I come to is it's kind of unsurprising but it's nice to document it Macbeth is hugely important Macbeth is repeated endlessly throughout literary history and we're still reading versions of the stories of Macbeth um, today so that's what the book is about Tracy, before we came to do this interview this morning, you highlighted a very interesting point in the introduction to this book um, about the representation of the witch depending on uh, various aspects such as the government that was in power at the time or the feeling of the people. What exactly was it that that was looking at? Yeah, it was um, basically saying that throughout history, whenever the conservatives and, you know, for want of a better term, the radicals have been in opposition and the conservatives have been getting a bit of a beating, they have always cried witch hunt. And, you know, you see that right the way through political history. And you still see it now? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah it's very contemporary. So is the figure of the witch being modified as a means to an end? Is the representation uh, strictly one of political means or for propaganda purposes in a lot of this literature or, or other portrayals? Yes, I think it is. And one of the ways the book is structured is responding to exactly that point that you were making since the 18th century. Radicals and conservatives have been in conflict over what witches mean and the witch is one of the figures that they use to dramatise their concerns, whether that's concerns about gender or society or liberty, all of those kind of things keep coming up over and over again. So yeah, it's a, it is a story about political conflict very often. 
So if we take as a starting point then the Renaissance period, which is the earliest period that you look at within this book, how is the figure of the witch being used within culture at that time? Which is a really important in Renaissance literature. I, I don't think you can overstate that, really. They seem to be everywhere. Um, there's a whole flood of plays in, in the Elizabethan and Jacobean period that have magical characters in them, um, and witches are very much part of that. So they're being used to talk about gender, because gender is changing in the period. Women are becoming more empowered. People are becoming more literate, generally, as Protestant ism kicks in in Britain. Um, they're being used to talk about politics, the politics of liberty and enfranchisement and the ways in which people can move around in society. So what we might now call upward mobility, they're being used to talk about class. Um, you know, are the, are the, the uppity poor the classic witch figures? And yes, quite often they are. And this happens in your play too, doesn't yeah. it? Um, so they're, they're being used to discuss bigger issues in, in early modern society. And because it's early modern society, it's also like our society today. You know, the roots of modernity lie in early modernity um, and you can see those kind of discourses carrying on in contemporary literature today. So are they ever being portrayed in what we might think of as a naturalistic way so the way that if you lived at that time you were coming across the witch as a figure within your own life do we see that straight portrayal or are they always a mechanism to something else? I think they're always a mechanism to something else because that's what particularly dramatic literature tends to do. But perhaps the most naturalistic play is The Witch of Edmonton. So you meet the character, the witch of Edmonton, Elizabeth Sawyer, um, who is based on a real woman who had been executed only days before the, the play was put on for the first time. Um, and we, we hear about her life in the most naturalistic way you are going to get in those times. So we hear about her poverty, we hear about her loneliness. She has a dog familiar who is a character in the play. So again, it's, it's really... It's a really inventive play, it's doing some really inventive dramatic things, but it's trying as far as it can to dramatise the life of this woman as she would have lived it. The play also goes off into a lot of other areas. It's, the witch is a kind of subplot, really, um, to a story about bigamy and contemporary gender politics and the contemporary politics of wealth and so on. But people at the time did I think have access to a way to dramatize um, stories of witches that felt quite naturalistic that had a documentary feel to them so it's not all about witches flying and, and you know singing cats and some of the things you get in other versions of, of the witchcraft story they love to dramatize a sabbath where you know it's all very funny and it's all very very singing and dancing and you know there's lots of stage mechanics and that kind of thing they loved that sort of thing but they did also love a story with trying to get to the nitty-gritty of what it might have felt like to be a person accused of witchcraft in, in reality. And Tracy, your play very much looks at um, the figure of the witch from a kind of non-witchcraft perspective almost. If, <laughs> yeah. if people aren't familiar with it, there's, there is in one of the earlier seasons of the podcast an episode all about your play Witch and, and the characters within it. But you used The Witch of Edmonton or an extract from it as part of um, the dialogue for your central character um, and did you do that because it was this kind of less dramatic and, and more rooted in the real? Yeah basically I found um, a quote 
from The Witch of Edmonton, completely out of context. It was being quoted in one of the texts I was using for my research. And I read it and I just kind of went cold because those few lines encapsulated the story that I had been telling, which was based on a real witch trial from 1687 from Dorset. And I thought, yeah, that is the story that I'm telling. Oh my God. Right, I have to use that. What's the copyright on this? And obviously it was written in the 1700s so you know it was yeah. well out well of copyright, copyright. <laughs> <laughs> and but it, you know which is takes a slightly different track with you know you sort of stereotypical witch trial thing because it's not like the crucible it's a play about witch trials which contains neither a trial nor any witchcraft um if anything it's a sort of trial of morals because you've got lots of gray areas with the three characters and it's for the audience to be the judge in their own mind based on what they've seen um you know but the, the going back to the witch of edmonton part yeah that was exactly w what the story was that i was telling and those few lines basically encapsulated marjorie my central character's story so i had to use it because it was just so perfect mm. and the renaissance period i guess renaissance theater renaissance literature is aimed more at the middle, upper middle classes of society, if you like. Whereas today, literature is accessible to everybody, theatre is essentially accessible to everybody, unless it's top-notch West End, very expensive theatre. Uh, but even so, people are able to access these kinds of arts uh, across the spectrum. That wasn't the case in Renaissance times. So does that have a bearing on the way that the witch is being represented, the fact that the representation is being aimed towards these upper classes rather than the poor? Yes, I think it does. Um, you know, if you, if you look at some of the plays which are not like The Witch of Edmonton, as I say, they're really entertaining. They're singing, dancing. They're, they're, some of them have an affinity with the mask form from the, the early modern period, which people might know about, which is, is essentially kind of musical entertainment. So that's a very different understanding of what it might feel like to be accused of, of being a witch. Um, yeah, it almost has no relationship to it, and that's made some contemporary critics quite, quite angry. You know, they've looked at the way in which the, the all singing, all dancing, which is being presented and said well that's disgusting actually you know there are real people being accused of witchcraft here they're being killed around the the audiences who are enjoying this stuff um, this is morally wrong so yes plays in the past were often more entertaining than they were realistic the witch of Edmonton is the shining example isn't it of something that's different yeah. which I think is why it's such an important play and um, you know you can really see the influences of it in your play it feels like the same play updated for modernity and done in a, a way which is far more sensitive to, to the kind of things that we should be sensitive to in contemporary society, particularly the politics of gender and class. It's ramped up that sense that this is a play for people who may have experienced injustice in their own lives, who, who may have experienced poverty in their own lives. So yeah, not the, the fine gentleman sitting on the, the Elizabethan stage, but mm. actually you, know, you and me and everybody around us. Yeah. And that feels like that feels like a really worthwhile, important development that that somebody's gone back to those sources and thought, hmm, we can do some more new things with this. Mm. And it seems right, doesn't it, that it's a moral dilemma. The Witch of Edmonton is a moral dilemma, but it does ultimately come down on the side that mm, she was a witch, <laughs> and yes, she was hanged at the end of the play. All very bad, but you know, we move on. Whereas your play leaves the the audience feeling, I, I think, bereft and and 
confused and upset, as it should do. Mm. It leaves it open, as it yeah. should do. Yeah, well, that, that, I, I deliberately did it that way so that the audience would take it away and think about it and have plenty to discuss afterwards. You know, I didn't want a character going from A to B very neatly with their guilt or innocence very mm. clearly defined from the outset because that's not interesting. Mm. I wanted there to be lots of twists and turns with all three of the characters so that mm. people kind of thinking they, they just about worked them out and then suddenly, oh, hang on mm. a minute. Yes. Oh, yes, I've got this. Oh, no, wait, I haven't. Yeah, no, I haven't. <laughs> yeah, because it's not simple, is it? That's, mm. that's the no, point. Exactly. It needs to be made complex and it yeah. needs to be left open. And I felt when I was watching the play, and I've seen it a couple of times now, as you know. A long it's... service award. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and very, very gladly too. <laughs> I'll probably come see it again next year. Excellent. Um, I felt like I was the jury, actually. That's yeah, that, what I felt like. That was, that was the, the audience is the jury. Yeah. It's, it's not a trial as such. It's not a formal trial in any way. But you have to make up your mind about what you think is going on. And so you have to be involved. You have to participate. Which is, again, something that early modern audiences, you know, people talk about the ways in which they would have participated in the theatre. But it's not that sense of, of um, equality between the audience and the performers that there is with your work. And that's a modern thing. But it takes these early modern roots and it reworks them. Brilliant. Exactly what I want people to be doing. Excellent. More, please. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at your bookshelves in your office as I sit here, which is absolutely fascinating, and I might have to take a photo of these They're before I go they? and okay, pop them on the website so that people can see what I'm talking about. So to my left as I sit here, we've got Shakespeare, um, a number of books on Shakespeare. Uh, and we've just talked about the representation of the witch within Shakespeare. And as the, as the shelves go further towards the right-hand side of the room, then they develop into, I can see Teen Witch, and I can see um, Game of Thrones, and I can see a complete set of Buffy the Vampire Slayer <laughs> on VHS. So you, as you said before, you're covering the whole kind of gamut of, from, from Renaissance history through to the modern day. So move us through that uh, with the figure of the witch. Uh, mm. as you do in your book and just just explain a little bit about how this representation changes over time from one end to the other yes all right lovely so from one end of the shelf to the other as it were um so witches start off as being entertaining figures i think i i think they're put into literature in order to to, to entertain an audience, to draw them in, to show them magical stage effects quite often. You know, early modern people were quite proud of the, the way that they could make thunder inside a, a theatre space or they could make lightning, that kind of thing. Um, or they could make people fly across the stage. So it's, it's, a, it's a form of entertainment. It's a way of people enjoying their experience at the theatre. But as time goes on, and particularly in the 18th century, writers start asking questions about really how okay this is. Is it just? Is it fair? What do witches mean in a society when people are starting increasingly to think about their own rights? And that's the rights of women, um, people like Mary Wollstonecraft. That's people thinking about legal rights. So a group of lawyers are thinking about the ways in which their own lives and their own liberties relate to the royal prerogative. So they're starting to think about, am I really free? You know, do I have affinities with characters in the past, particularly witches who have not been free, who've been accused wrongly of things, who've been put in positions that they shouldn't have been put in, particularly by King James, who becomes a bit of a hate figure in this period for obvious reasons. And during the 19th century, this develops further. The gender question becomes stronger over time as women become more powerful in societies. They demand the vote um, and the rights to their own property and so on. 
platform. And really things change, I think, in, in the First World War, which is a, a big cataclysmic moment of change for all sorts of things in society, but particularly for issues of gender and empowerment. You know, how, how empowered are the soldiers who are being sent off to the front to fight for, for what they see as, as a kind of, you know, a class of people set above them who are not really involved and who are making a lot of money out of this operation? How far are women empowered if they're, they're not being allowed to participate properly um, in society yet they're being expected to contribute to the war effort so the first world war changes a lot of things and it's then you get this wonderful explosion of fictions about witches which i didn't really know about before i started writing this book i knew about some significant ones like sylvia townsend warner's lolly willows that people might have read um but i didn't know about a little book by stella benson called living alone which doesn't have an obviously witchy title and doesn't tag to you that that's what it's about um, but turns out to be this amazing little kind of magical realist story about about a witch who comes into a committee room during the war in London and just transforms everything enables people to think differently and frees the central character who is a little bit like Stella Benson it's a kind of semi-autobiographical fantasy to go off and do her own thing to live alone to change her world to, to go off as it turns out at the end of the, the book to go off and live in America by herself if she wants to so witches become this mechanism for empowering groups of people who have felt themselves to be disempowered in the past and then really the book traces the the the, the ongoing politics of that throughout the 20th century so as you were saying earlier Tracy the conservatives push back the radicals push back there's this fight going on across the 20th century on the conservative side you've got writers like Dennis Wheatley um, on the radical side you've got a group of writers following on from Sylvia Townsend Warren and Stella Benson um, who really triumphed by the 1990s by which time the witch has become a really positive figure but in contemporary society today as you were saying earlier Mark you know, we've still got people who are happy to call witch hunts, whether about themselves or about others. They're happy to call others witches. They're happy to deploy those old stereotypes um, in the service of, of a conservative culture. So the fight is ongoing. And, and if you move from one end of the shelf to the other one, you, you find at the end there's a kind of raggedy section where there are people <laughs> fighting, as they always have been. And the, the witch is a very strong figure uh, that has potential use for propagandist purposes so do we find the representation of the witch being different on the two sides of warring factions in both in the first and the second world war anywhere else for that matter yes you do so you get the the kind of stella benson witch who is lovely basically who brings nothing but happiness and beneficence into society um, and transforms everything around her in a really positive way so that people can see the world differently. And set against that, there's the Dennis Wheatley witch, who is just this horrible, horrible creature. <laughs> um, very, very guilty, very, very satanic. Usually the kind of person that Wheatley disapproved of. So he's often concerned that witches are in league with communists, for example. Dear, they're terribly left-wing. We can't have that. Um, you know, they're nasty, exploitative people. That They abuse women. Wheatley's motivation was often quite racist. So they're groups who are set against empire, they're groups who are set against you know, the obviously jolly good Britishness at the heart of the text. And this is who his heroes are, they're jolly good people. Um, but of course they're not jolly good people, actually. Um, so, so modern readers experience, I think, this, this duality about the witch figure, that, that on the one hand they're very, very positive and on the other very, very negative. Some texts do both. If you look at, at contemporary culture today, 
today, for example, the series American Horror Story Coffin, does quite a good job, I think, of making the witches both guilty and innocent, both nasty and nice, and making them really, really complex. So again, you've got that issue of complexity. Who is right here? Um, are both sides right? Should these characters be punished? Should they be seen to be witches in the old-fashioned sense, or should they be celebrated as heroines? Um, so contemporary culture makes it more complex, I think, but you certainly do have this binary that just carries on. And we'll, we'll come to the kind of contemporary, like up-to-date modern representation in a minute, but just moving through from the war to that point then, we have, I guess, if we look at culture and entertainment generally, the 1950s is the height of the kitchen sink drama, the 1960s moves into the sexual revolution and, and that kind of aspect. Do we find the representation of the witch is mirroring this culture? Yes, we do. Shift as we go through? Yeah, the witch is a kind of a social barometer, if you like. You know, I think, I think the witch is a really useful figure for, for measuring society's concerns at the time. And yeah, you know, in the 60s you get a big explosion of, of stories which are about about the, the, the witch cult as a sexual cult. So we go off to Sabbaths with the witches and we see the awful things that they're up to there, which of course are now not seen as so awful. Actually, what if this is about sexual freedom? What if it's about liberation? A lot of the authors still feel obliged to wrap it up in a package, which is essentially condemnatory, but you get that sense that the witch is moving on again. Um, the 50s was a period of real constriction, actually, and a lot of the popular fictions in that period go back to the idea that the witch is a, a kind of revolutionary figure and should be suppressed therefore <laughs> so yeah it's absolutely a measure of the times that, that each fiction is written in and at any point does the witch then become more celebratory rather than being quashed at every opportunity yeah it comes and goes it's 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 in waves basically so yes in the 20s yes celebratory and then down through wheatley and in the 1930s down to condemnatory and then back up again in the 50s moving through condemnatory to the celebratory 60s and then back down again and the 80s horror film for example and it's really in the 1990s that people start to pay proper attention to this i think because witches were everywhere in popular culture and that was a broadly celebratory moment but it's odd how it hasn't lasted. I think when I when I taught the module in the 1990s in the version that I was delivering then, I thought that was it. I was like, this is it. We have now achieved, you know, peak inclusiveness. Isn't it marvellous? <laughs> the witch has been rehabilitated. It's all lovely. And in fact, she's a bit too fluffy, a bit too domestic, actually. Um, but oh, that didn't last, did it? <laughs> and we are where we are now. So it goes up and down, peaks and troughs, I think. But can we argue that where we are now is kind of split because we have the aspect of the witch in the modern equivalent of what would have been the hammer horror film in the 70s let's say but then we also have the figure of the witch um as it relates to the younger generation i'm thinking about things like um sabrina the teenage mm. witch which of course now has a reboot mm. via netflix as well so the witch is a figure to the young is empowering in many ways, Buffy, mm. Sabrina, those mm. sorts of aspects. Whereas to the older viewer, the witch is a more horrific mm. figure. I think that's that right. Yes, case? I think there is a generational 
politics around this. And if you grew up in the 1990s, you probably don't think back to the period before when the witch was this you know, dark and threatening figure. Um, and I think the new, the new series of Sabrina does a beautiful job, a bit like American Horror Story Coven, actually, of attempting to balance that. So it, it, the witches have their dark aspects, and perhaps for some younger viewers, that is going to be quite surprising. Yeah. So, you know, they basically are Satanists. <laughs> oh, that's a bit different to, to you know, Willow in Buffy and, and the first Sabrina mm. um, on screen, isn't it? Who yeah. would not have been found dead in any of those kind <laughs> of settings. So, yes, I think the, the, the two aspects continue, they do, and they're held in tension. So can any of us think of uh, modern examples of the portrayal of the witch, which we think are particularly good in whatever aspect? I mean, for example, I guess I'm thinking about um, the witch, a New England folklore or folktale. Um, when that film came out, for me, and some people disagree with this view, I must admit, for me, that was a superb film up until the last 10 minutes. Mm. And that last 10 minutes, um, some people may not have seen it, so this section may contain spoilers. Um, <laughs> I'll try not to. But the last 10 minutes for me became a bit too Hollywood. I thought up until that point, it was a really good and fair and probably honest portrayal. But then it became a little bit too much. Mm. But I think that's still a fairly strong example of a good mm. representation in many ways. It is. What else have we got in the modern period, either of you, that, that you think are particularly good mm. representations? Well, I did like The Witch. I, I, yeah, and I kind of agree with you about it, actually. Um the end seems to me to go back to some old stereotypes from 17th century art of witches, you know, flying naked in the forest and all this kind of thing. And, and like you, I was disappointed. I wasn't sure it was going there. So I like that. And it was a, quite a surprising film. I think it was one of the first films that made me think, oh, something has changed, actually. You know, this is not the sort of fluffy domestic witch. Um, this isn't The Witch or Bewitched. Although that said, I did like the 2005 film Bewitched a lot. That, that was peak fluffiness again. <laughs> Absolutely loved that. I think I was in a minority of about three people who liked that <laughs> film. It wasn't very popular. So I absolutely loved that, but it, I also liked that because it was writing back to itself. It, it was very self-referential and it wrote back to the, the series um, Bewitched from the 60s and 70s. I do like stories that that know about their roots, you know. In a sense, it doesn't matter whether they, they treat the witch as a, as a terrible demonic threat or as a, a you know lovely positive heroine role model. I, but I always like it when they acknowledge their roots and they acknowledge previous representation. So anything that does that, I'm really happy with. I like that. Tracy, anything for you? I actually like Charmed. Okay. I like Charmed. I like the way they kind of draw on... Um, proper if you like proper witchcraft they have this wonderful um book of shadows which has been passed down the female line in their family since christ knows when and um i like the way that it reveals both the dark and light in their the three central characters psyches because they're not all just good they're not all bad they fall prey to their temptations, you know, they're very human, they can, they're relatable. And I think it's a very good um, example of how 
you would actually cope with having these amazing powers and living and navigating through what is on the outside to everybody else a normal social life mm -hmm. and i actually very much um, enjoyed charmed the original Charles. Yes, I've not yes. seen the reboot. And in novels, actually, I mean, there are a couple of novels that, that I think most people who are interested in witches haven't read. One of them is John Updike's The Widows of Eastwick, which is the sequel to The Witches of Eastwick, which is the last book he wrote in 2009. And there's a lot wrong with it. It's not a perfect novel, but it does continue that story of The Witches of Eastwick and tries to, to move it along, to update it in certain ways, to, to bring to a close some of the... the issues he started running in in the earlier book so i like that one and i think it's it's little read and little celebrated and so if i can have a kind of shout about it on the podcast that'd be great <laughs> and the other one is um helen oyeyemi's book white is for witching which i've now just put onto the module that we've been talking about so much and that's about a, it's a haunted house story and it brings together all sorts of multicultural representations of what witches are in this house in dover and it's about migration and it's about identity and it's about gender and it tackles some really difficult themes things like eating disorders um, and it's really fascinating I, I like a story that does something new as well as a story that knows about its roots and I think that book does both like you can see her scholarship but you can also see oh she's doing something a bit new quite like that just going back to Eastwick as well um, for a second because you discuss the witches of Eastwick uh, and its sequel quite a lot in your book. Um, and that's another example of something where we've got two versions as well, uh, because there was the original Jack Nicholson et al film, and then there was the TV series version, which took it in a slightly different direction. Um, what do we feel about those two? It's obviously quite a key text. Mm. You, you give it a lot of page time in your book, what do we feel about the shift between the two versions of that story? Yeah, I get some interesting reactions from students every year about that. There are people who think um, that the original story is a dreadful, misogynistic, <laughs> troubling thing, which in many ways it is. Um, but I do think it also has tremendous strength. I think it's wonderfully written because Updike's a fantastic writer. But then you'll also get students who say, no, no, the original book was a masterpiece. It, it, it was a fascinating and multi-layered exploration of, of you know, the world of, of the 80s in which he wrote it and, and the ways in which witches have intersected with American culture since blah, blah. And they're right too. Um, and they think the film is a hideous betrayal, you know, which is all about women with enormous hair. <laughs> <laughs> And, and traps them ultimately in this ridiculous glittery fantasy, which, which looks like feminism but isn't. So it does evoke some really strong reactions, that one. I think the overriding memory of a lot of people who watch that film is just the vomiting cherry yeah, scene yeah. as well, to be yes. honest. <laughs> it's horrid, isn't it? But, but if we think about the... Uh... <laughs> Pause for everybody to just feel a bit sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll gloss over that. If we think about the, the reboot version, though... Um, Daryl's character mm. almost becomes secondary, uh, even more so. Mm. The, the, the misogynistic kind of patriarchal side of, of Daryl's character in the original film almost takes second place to the three female characters in the TV series. Mm. I remember Tracy and I watched TV series and, and enjoyed it and were quite disappointed mm. when they axed it, actually, because it was yes. left at quite an interesting point. It was, I liked point. it, too. 
Um, now the film is probably a, a better portrayal of the original book, uh, and by better I mean more accurate <laughs> portrayal rather than necessarily uh, more favourable. But the TV series, I would argue, is possibly more interesting and more positive. Is that the case? Yeah, here? because I think a lot of the time when Daryl's misogyny was trying to come out, they just turn around and go, nope. <laughs> you know, the female characters, yes. yeah. you know, they weren't having any of it, were they? So he was attempting to push against that, but they were just going, nope. Hmm. It feels like it's found a way to negotiate that, doesn't it? That it's possible not to go along with the version of the story that Updike originally put into yeah. that text. And, yeah. and it's it's a revisiting that tries to do something more modern with it. But no, it was axed before even the end of the first season, wasn't it? Which is really mm. sad, I think. Mm. And I do think, again, that was quite a significant moment. I think people might have had enough at that point of that story, which I thought was fascinating. Mm. You know, had it got too, had it got too positive? And maybe it had. But it was also axed mm. to the point where the story was changing. Mm, it was. It as well. Was. I which, don't think which, it was given time. I think time. it was, yes, mm. and, and that's often the case with, I think, with American dramas particularly, is if they don't hit the viewing figures mm. early on, they don't get the eight seasons of Fire Game of Thrones Fly, or yeah. Fireflies oh. of Prime. Oh, no, no. Fireflies no, of Prime, too example. Soon. <laughs> wandering off topic slightly. But, but Firefly is a prime example because mm. there's an example of um, you have a film and you have a series which in itself causes argument about which order they go in. <laughs> some people will argue that Serenity comes before the series and some people will argue that it comes afterwards. But the fact is that people talk about it all the time and there's such a strong campaign to revive Firefly. Firefly. We have the board game. We have you know, all sorts of things. And the graphic novels. And, yeah, yeah. But yet... You know, it, it never, yeah, yeah, it never happened though. It never happened. So, and that purely because mm. it didn't hit early on, yeah. and and that's the difficult point. You have to get the story right to start yeah. with, don't you? Yeah, it's a bit like Six 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 Park Avenue, isn't it? That was another good example. You know, yes. that that got cancelled mid-season, but they gave them sufficient notice to enable them to rewrite the final episode mm. to make it a self-contained mm. single series. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, and that was the good. one redeeming feature yeah. of that axing, is that it did bring a sense of closure. Yeah, it was very unsatisfactory, but it was a sense of closure. Yeah. And that was another one that yeah. we started to get mm. a bit of a complex about, because all the series that we were really enjoying were just getting axed left, right and centre. Mm. It's true. Uh, and this has nothing to do one. with witchcraft, but the river, yeah. Alcatraz, the <laughs> yeah. reboot of V. Yeah. Tracy and I single-handedly killed all of yeah. those seasons by awful. enjoying them. We got such well, a complex start, Don't start <laughs> campaigning for a reboot of Eastwick. Keeping well away from everything yeah. now. Yeah. But I do think it's one of those stories that gets retold and retold. It's, it's the modern Macbeth, actually, Eastwick. And I found mm. myself devoting more and more time to it, because like you, I thought, this is just being retold over and over again. It keeps mm. coming back, doesn't it? And it does deserve another go yes that that one season wasn't enough yeah. more yeah. please and, and maybe it will maybe it will um i'm going to change tack slightly in a moment but before we do we probably glossed over an area that a lot of people of a certain generation will go but you didn't discuss that in detail and that was the hammer horror hmm. kind of um stable of films which um which we very very briefly mentioned and the amicus films which again you know is the same kind of period is that an important period uh, from the point of view of the representation mm. of the witch um, and is it unfortunate that we now just see it as being a kind of you know camp 1970s mm. 
tomato sauce bloody type portrayal of, of anything that's horrific and supernatural yes I think it is and I could have written an entire book on it I think and I hope somebody will at some stage well you should I suppose I should yeah could I have some more time yes of course <laughs> could you possibly just clone me so that okay. I could manage to do that all we'll right brilliant we'll, we'll have that yeah I think it was a wonderful period of um of cinematic history in particular and the period right the way through from say the witches in 1966 which is you know there's this wonderful film based on a, a Nora Loft novel um, right the way through Witchfinder General and the Wicker Man in the 70s through to the early 80s I think that was a great period of people reconceptualizing what the witch did but often really in a very conservative and a very backward looking way which again I love backward looking but I also want things to move on a little bit and some of those stories felt like they could have been written in the early modern period. They were all about how witches were, were subversives and um, you know, and Satanists and, and wicked people and, and perverted and terrifying and they would creep around in the night and kill you if they got a chance. Um, yeah, very traditional then. But yes, there should be more scholarship about that I think and people do tend to shy away from it a bit because you, you, know, you do find people say, oh well that's just sort of schlocky rubbish isn't it? No, absolutely not. No, it really isn't. And it deserves to be written about more. Absolutely. And you've only got to look at um, the popularity of something like Folk Horror Revival uh, as a Facebook group, for example. So name check. Mm -hmm. um, Andy and Jim Peters and Darren Charles and all of the others that are involved with that. There's a whole um, string of admins for that site. But that has grown and grown and grown. Last time I looked, it was on 20,000 plus members. Mm. It's a very, very active group. Uh, which is discussing this whole kind of theme, isn't it, of of um, the landscape and, and our folk traditions within it. And, and yes, if you look at media examples, things like the Hammer series, the, the Wicker Man, the, these are all really, really important. Mm. And that, it's not this schlock campy kind of period at all. It's actually a key pivotal point, isn't it, within it is. this? And often it's about identity as well. It's about, you know, Britain reworking itself after the empire. And I think that's fascinating because you're looking at ways of retelling a story which is all about kind of folk demons um, and very heavily folkloric. And I quite like the way in which Doctor Who revisited this with the episode The Witchfinders. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That, was, I th that was fascinating and it did suggest to me that maybe with this generation of writers for, for popular TV series and, and for the cinema maybe this is a generation that wants to do a bit more with that earlier period yeah. i think it i think they do and mm. films like a field in england as well which drew strongly on which find a general it feels like maybe the moment has come to say more about mm. that yeah definitely and we would encourage you as you missed it and we were discussing about this before mm. we started recording this interview to go and revisit inside number nine yeah. and find their yes, episode definitely. on, on, fab. on the great. witch trials and witch trials because um, that has some very very key and important themes within the black comedy of the episode as well. That was really, really good. Um, so we've covered a lot of culture here. We've covered films, we've covered TV, we've covered literature. Um, we haven't covered art particularly. Um, but what else in your study of rediscovering Renaissance witchcraft are you rediscovering outside of these kind of yeah. art cultures? Everything that I can, I guess, within the scope of the book, I do think there's a lot to be said about art history here too. There was an exhibition a while back at um, the Tate St Ives, which was um, 
which was about the idea of magic in contemporary art. And I think that's really important. I think magical realism as a literary genre is quite heavily indebted to the visual arts. You know, it often starts with surrealism and painting, um, and then people take it into literature, the, the telling of stories. I think there's a lot more to be said on that front. And I think filmically as well. You know, I, I, I did a bit of stuff in the book about, as we were saying, that, that Hammer Amicus period, and then looking at the, the, um, the films of the 80s and 90s and the TV series of the 80s and 90s. But visual culture is really important here. Often what the witch looks like is the first thing that people think of. It isn't a story that they've read, it's an image that they've got in their head. And that can be a painting or a film um, or, you know, just some sort of flickering representation that they saw in their childhood that, that has haunted them ever since. There are certain stereotypes, aren't there? And I, I suppose people like uh, the Disney Corporation, those sorts of mm. people, do, do a lot to propagate the stereotype of the witch. They do, and and films like Maleficent revisit that today in in new and interesting ways. And again, I think the think there's a whole book there. That if we could have more time again, um, there's a whole book about about witches in film, if you like, witches in contemporary representation. There are some some very good um, books about that from the past. Tanya Krasinska is a writer who who wrote a lot about that, um, the the visual image of the witch. But I think, again, we, we need something to update that excellent scholarship and do something with contemporary filmic culture. And another aspect which we talked about earlier, uh, before we started this interview, which comes out of your book, is the um, witchcraft in Scotland, mm. uh, and kind of rediscovering that whole aspect. Um, do you want to say a little bit about where what you worked with there? Yes, yes, I do. Um, I was saying earlier on that a lot of the rewriting of Renaissance witchcraft is a rewriting of Macbeth. And it is famously the Scottish play. Um, okay, it's an English work as far as we know. As far as we know, Shakespeare did not go to Scotland, did not write it in Scotland. But he did draw on Scottish sources, and one of those is, is the story of the North Berwick witches, which, you know, again, you'll, you'll know as a famous witchcraft trial. That's probably the story that gets retold most often. You know, Macbeth is retold, but what they're really retelling, and they often don't know this, I think, is the story of the North Berwick witches. So a group of, of men and women who were said to have intrigued against um, King James VI of Scotland, as he then was, then becomes James I of England, um, and attempted to kill him and, and his new bride, Anne of Denmark, and, and deprive him of his throne, um, and put a satanic pretender on the throne instead of him. So it's a violently political story, and it's a story that's quite unusual. It's not like the story of the Witch of Edmonton, which is about a solitary figure being accused. It's about an entire group of people being accused, and, you know, it's said at one point in the, in the trial that there may be 200 of them, so an enormous witchcraft conspiracy. Um, and the political themes of Macbeth come out of that to a large extent, you know, themes about usurpation and bad kingship and traitors and, and so on. So that's a story that's really important. And one of the things I wanted to do with the book was say, you know all those stories you think are English? <laughs> Quite often they're Scottish stories. That gives them something else. That gives them something different. And the identity politics of, of the, you know, the folk horror revival that you've been talking about, they're often focused on England. It's quite interesting to think there's this other dimension to them. There's a Scottish dimension. And sometimes also Irish and Welsh dimensions. You know, the Isle of Man figures prominently in the, the rediscovery of witchcraft today. 
because Gerald Gardner went there and, and you know opened his witchcraft museum there. So I think often there's a kind of Celtic story that, that's hidden underneath some of the things we think we know about witches. And we kind of come full circle here in a way because within your own institution here at the University of Exeter you also have Emma Wilby as a researcher into these areas. Emma wrote um, a very extensive study of Isabel Gowdy uh, as, as a very well-known Scottish witch. Isabel Gowdy is the theme of this year's special exhibition at the Museum of Witchcraft, which of course is now based in Cornwall. Um, so there we go, we go a whole sort of circle of Gerald Gardner's Witchcraft Museum being set up and we come again back to the Scottish angle in that case and that I think should be a really fascinating exhibition for this year. I think it should yes and Emma's a fabulous scholar so I really look forward to seeing some more about this. That's very neat isn't it? It's good isn't it? Very neat and and pleasing closure. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything else that we haven't covered from your book that you think you would like to discuss? Um... No, I mean, there's loads. The thing about witchcraft is it's a gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? There's always more to be said about it. Um, I could put in a quick plug for Kate Pullinger's book Weird Sister, which is one of the things I, I wish I'd mentioned earlier. Um, another fabulous novel about a witchcraft trial, this time Agnes Samuel and the Witches of War Boys. Um, that's part of that whole conversation about how we take an old trial, as you have done in your play, and make it live again, make make it, make it relevant to us. As we've said before, um, and we were saying this before we started recording this, witchcraft is still a hugely live issue in the world today. People are still being accused across the world of witchcraft. They're being tortured and they're being executed in horrible ways. They're, they're being persecuted and exiled, driven out of their communities. So... There's a really serious edge to this, as well as it being entertaining. I think it's it's important to remember that. And one of the things I'm thinking about doing with the module as it, as it develops further over the years, I hope, is finding a way to balance that better. I think more people now know more about the ways in which witchcraft is, is still a persecutory stereotype. And there's probably more that we could do with that. So it's a serious note, but I think it's an important one. It is, absolutely. Um, and I guess um, if we're going to talk about Weird Sister, then we should also think about Weird Sisters, plural, which is another area that we didn't cover, which which is the representation of the witch in a more comedic way. Terry Pratchett um, used the figure of the witch a lot in the Discworld series, um, and to very good effect, because, of course, Terry had... Um, the wonderful folklorist Jacqueline Simpson as a kind of advisor for the folklore aspects of his writing, um, which he used to great effect. Um, So that's an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? The really serious and really important aspect of witchcraft persecution, which you've just discussed. Uh, And then the figure of the witch being used completely the other way mm. how do those two sit together for you i think it's hard to make them sit together actually when you when you've only got 11 weeks on your module that's a long journey to go on as well as getting from the middle ages to the present but i do intend to try and balance it up a bit more i think um, and it's the same with the Harry Potter books. Although they deal with very serious issues at times, they tend to do so with a very light touch. Mm. Um, so I think there are ways of negotiating it. I would like to put Pratchett on the module. I've thought about that repeatedly and how there are there are ways that you could do that. And of course, he famously rewrites Macbeth. So he's absolutely in the mainstream of this long tradition of rewriting The Witch. Um, 
it's difficult to talk about comedy and it's difficult to talk about tragedy actually the ideal text has a little bit of both but there are these extremes as well and balancing those is a real challenge i think yes and i i don't think the the portrayal of the witch in a comedic way does anything to um, negate those important aspects of the story. No, it doesn't. I mean, often we laugh at what we're frightened of yeah. or, or we laugh because the alternative is crying. And we, you know, we, we are hugely concerned about the idea of persecution in, in society and injustice. But sometimes it's nice to, to reframe that in a way where one of the characters, yeah, as you were saying earlier, one of the characters just says, no, we're not having any of that. Um, and practice characters do that quite a lot, don't they? They mm. just answer back. Yeah. If somebody's trying trying to do something bad to them they just click their fingers and zap them or, or, or they say something witty and that diffuses the situation doesn't it so they are very much a relationship with each other and he, he knew that clearly the themes in his books are very profound and one of the one of the difficulties about working within academia is that if you say that not everybody believes you <laughs> but they should because a comic novel about witches can be just as effective as a teaching tool as a, a big serious fat text like Macbeth mm. because there's so much hidden in Pratchett's book, well not even hidden, but it's there's so much in there that you have to unpick. So you think you're reading a, a funny book about comedic witches and then you know you get all the pathos and you get um, all the drama mm. and it's it like makes political statements and so there's so much in there mm. it's not what it appears to be no. at first glance his writing is so clever mm. yes it is it's really moving at times isn't Absolutely, it you, yeah. you feel like you've been on a philosophical journey yeah, with these characters definitely but yeah. if you say that sometimes people go oh, I don't think so mm. but they're wrong they <laughs> are yeah completely agree <laughs> Yay! There we go. More reading recommendations. This is, this is what the, one of the things the podcast should achieve. I think yes. is that people then go over the long reading list of fab new stuff. So yeah, add Terry Pratchett, Weird Sisters. Excellent, Marion. Thank you so much for um, spending the time to talk about this. If people are interested in your work, your research, your module, where should they look for more information? So they could look on the university's website if they want to. The module has a lovely long reading list, as you would expect, secondary reading as well as primary, so lots of, of exciting academic books about witches as well as reading recommendations for the, the ones that uh, we've talked about today. They can have a look at Rediscovering Renaissance Witchcraft, which I'm now holding up, which you can't see, um, <laughs> and explore the world that we've talked about more so the rewriting of stories like Macbeth in contemporary culture and I've also just finished a book called Witchcraft the Basics which takes things a little broader and looks at some of the anthropological themes in witchcraft looks at the field that, that I call witchcraft studies which in academia as I think what this stuff is beginning to be packaged as if you like so there's a range of stuff and it's just so exciting go and read more about it people <laughs> I'll put links to all of those things on the podcast website so that people can go straight through and take a look at your book and take a look at your module and the rest of your research. Marion, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. My thanks to Marion for a fascinating discussion into the themes of her research, which I hope will provide you all with a nice long reading and viewing list for a while to come. Do pay a visit to the guests page on the Folklore Podcast website where you'll find links to Marion's work. And thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore 
or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening.